Beloved in the Lord, I preach Christ crucified. What a comfort and an honor for the church. It is a comfort in that we do not need wisdom or power to believe in the cross, to believe that Christ came, died for my sins, rose and ascended to heaven. It doesn't take some great wisdom to grasp that truth. The cross, a symbol of shame, can become a symbol of boasting for the mocked, derided, and persecuted. It is an honor in that bearing the crucified Christ, we walk upon the path of the Lord of the universe. The first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches us that the gospel undermines both of those who look for power and those who look for wisdom. The gospel appears to be foolishness to those who look for wisdom. And the gospel appears weak for those who want power. That is why the gospel often appeals to those who know that they do not have power or wisdom. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, the word of the cross demonstrates the power of the gospel. The word of the cross, the word that comes from the cross, demonstrates the power of the gospel. First, we'll look at human wisdom. Second, we'll look at Christ crucified. And third, we'll look at spiritual power. Paul's focus narrows in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. He began by noting how the cross challenged both the Greek and the Judean understandings of reality. In chapter 2, he seems to narrow in on the Greeks and their wisdom. And this makes sense for this is the Corinthian reality. Corinth is in Greece, not that far from Athens. We can get a feel for the character of this mindset when Paul goes to Athens. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Athens is an extreme, but Athens has a considerable influence on the world at that time. And we can imagine that Corinth, not that far geographically from Athens, shares in some of that attitude, delighting in academia, delighting in the new and the novel. Paul contrasts himself to, to con his contemporary philosophers, orators, and other elites in Greek and Roman society. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. When Paul came into Corinth, he didn't use the methods of the learned in his own day in order to win over the Corinthians. This should immediately help us to see the limitations of what Paul later says in chapter 9. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul excludes some of the methods of his day because ultimately that would change the character of his message. He comes to the Corinthians as an ambassador of Christ crucified, and that ambassadorship affects the character of his message. Let's take a moment to understand what that lofty speech and wisdom that Paul is talking about. 
The lofty speech is probably a reference to the, the sophists, or, or Paul has the sophists in mind when he's talking about this. Sophists were those who taught people rhetoric, public speaking, not in order to instruct and persuade in the truth, but to win. They would delight in arguing things for things that were entirely ridiculous. If you were to compare this group to some group today, it would be those who champion moral relativism, who delight in making good seem evil and evil good. The sophist approach also came with any number of physical rhetorical flourishes, whether it was thumping your fist on your thigh, the way you stood, and a variety of other physical and verbal flourishes. These were often adopted by first century orators in general. But Paul chooses not to adopt these because he believes that the gospel doesn't need these things. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself, but to God. Now, this doesn't doesn't mean that Paul used no rhetorical training in his approach. Even his letters are a picture of carefully worked out arguments. But he does not want to use these manipulative means. That's that's at the heart of the problem here. These means that the orders of that day used were often manipulative. And Paul knew that the gospel doesn't need manipulation in in order to spread. We can think here of sermons that are full of charisma, but with no or very little biblical content. The preacher shouts and waves his hands, tells jokes, speaks on relevant topics, but Christ and his word makes little or no appearance. The second thing Paul did not come with here is wisdom. Paul likely has the sophists in mind, again, who love to give the appearance of wisdom. But he's also more general. Wisdom here refers to not to practical decision-making. That tends to be how we tend to think of it. We're wise when we know how to make the right decision at the right time. But wisdom doesn't refer to that here, but to philosophical schools. Paul doesn't try to impress with learning, with a coherent worldview. Again, that's not a bad thing. We want to have a Christian worldview. We want to have Christian wisdom. But we need to be careful about overcomplicating the gospel. Don't need a, a sermon that is a learned discourse on how Kant or Kant connects with the gospels. We need to be careful about bringing a gospel for the elites. In the 19th century, pastors would vie with one another in showing off their impressive learning in the pulpit. And there's still a temptation for pastors today. We can show off our academic credentials rather than having a desire to simply teach God's people. Simply teach God's people the word. Corinth was a world full of ideas, full of philosophies, full of people who had it made. Men of the world who knew how the world worked. They had the time and the money to engage in thinking and pondering the things of life. 
They knew how to order things and how to interact with the world. And they enjoyed the process of arguing with one another about these things. Again, they loved to hear new things. It reminds us of our own world and our, our need for the novel in everything we do. While philosophers are not the people we pay attention to today, we are constantly distracted by social media by the 24 hours news cycle, by the constant cycles of outrage that characterize those mediums. But Christianity isn't just another competing philosophy. It's, it's not another lifestyle. It isn't a competing political system. It isn't another therapy for mental health. It isn't just another religion competing in the marketplace. Christianity is the truth. So how does Paul slice through all the sounds that tingle the ears and excite the hearts of the people of Corinth? Paul says, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. As we read through the rest of 1 Corinthians 2, if we read through the rest of 1 Corinthians 2, we see a little more of how Christianity is a coherent worldview with its own unique wisdom. But Paul is going to begin by bringing in the simple message. He cuts through all the noise with a simple word of power, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That brings us to our second point, Christ crucified. Paul did not preach the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He explains, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul decides to have tunnel vision in the world of the Corinthians. In order to reach out to them, he needs to exclusively focus on Christ. Of course, Paul does not literally know nothing except for Christ crucified. The point is, the cross is the summary and the center of everything Christians stand for. Everything we stand for goes back to the cross of Christ. That's what the book of 1 Corinthians is about. It's how, how does the cross apply to our lives? This was his exclusive focus in reaching out to the Corinthians. And we can see this in the, in the other letters as well. So it's not only the Corinthians. But the Corinthians are so impressed by knowledge and rhetoric and expertise that he emphasizes the opposite. A simple fact of history. The cross of Jesus Christ. And what a thing to emphasize. The cross was a symbol of slavery and shame. We often miss that today because the image of the cross is everywhere. Wearing a cross can be something cool rather than something deeply shameful. In the world of, of, the, of Paul, the cross is connected with rebellion and slavery. And he says, I will know nothing except for this cross. Why? Paul needs to show the Corinthians the shame that their sins deserve, the punishments that their sins deserve. While they argue amongst themselves about the best laws and the best way of life, they forget, they cover up their sin and misery, they cover up their need for the cross. 
We attempt to fill our lives with noise, with music, with podcasts, with newspapers, anything to keep things interesting. Paul, again, wants to cut through all that with the word of the cross because the cross demonstrates that we don't need all these distractions. What we need is a savior. Maybe the Corinthians of that day even knew that there was a problem. Many of the day's philosophies realized that there was a problem and they offered salvation through a particular way of ordering society or ordering your life. But the cross says, no, you can't fix it yourself. Your sinful flesh will always mess things up. The problem is sin. That's what needs to be taken care of. And I, Jesus, will take care of it. I will take the shame and the degradation and the horrific punishment, ultimately the wrath of God that you deserve. Christ says, I have become sin in your place for your sake. The cross is a new beginning. But the cross doesn't only say, I did this for you. The cross of Jesus Christ calls upon those who hear to take up their cross. Our whole lives are bound in the work of Christ. They, the church, bear the cross of Jesus before the world. This comes out in 1 Corinthians 11 as Paul discusses the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat of it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, we reflect our Lord in the world so that we know nothing other than Jesus Christ crucified. That's hard because when we feel we are wronged, we get angry. Or when we feel we are comfortable, we grow in pride. And we lose the focus on the cross of Christ. Paul's own ministry reflects that of Christ. He brings a gospel that begins with shame. Yes, there is the resurrection, but first one must accept the crucifixion. Again, the most shameful death you could have in the first century world. So he tells the people of Corinth, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He comes bearing the weakness of Christ. Now, we hear of the courage of Paul in speaking the gospel, moved by the Spirit in the book of Acts. So it's hard to know exactly what Paul is talking about here. At least part of this weakness is that he does not adopt the ways of the sophists. He may also not have been a great speaker or a charismatic one. That might be something that was natural to him and a weakness as he spoke to the Corinthians. He later seems to assume that some of the Corinthians at least considered him a bad speaker, at least by Greek standards. He may also have struggled with illness in his ministry. When he he recounts the trials, he dealt with hunger and thirst, imprisonment, bad weather, and the mental anguish of going through the slander and lies of the Jews. When he recounts those trials that he went through later in 1 Corinthians, we can imagine that his body was not always in great shape. So Paul is undoubtedly limited by his human weakness, by his weak flesh. Paul also comes with fear and trembling. 
Perhaps he fears more attacks from those who hate the gospel, and so he must find courage in God. Perhaps his fear of suffering is complemented, overturned by a fear and trembling before God, a fear that he might not fulfill his calling. This seems to connect with Paul's later words, I beat my body into submission lest I be found wanting. This is the man who comes before the Corinthians bearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, carrying the hope of the cross. He is consumed with the desire to serve his Lord before he serves anyone or anything else. He is consumed with the desire to bear the message of the cross so all may see and know the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's strategy to know nothing except Christ crucified is not unique to the Corinthians, but it is especially important that he emphasizes this to them. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is not, it's not just an add-on to our lives. It's not something you can just add, and then publicly it doesn't matter what you do. Instead, it radically informs every part of our life so that all things are done in service to Him. The Corinthians need to let go of their attachment to human wisdom and find fullness in the cross of Christ. The cross is the answer to our sin. The cross is the foundation by which Jesus justifies us and gives us life in him. On the cross, we die so that we may be raised with Jesus. And in the life of Jesus, we are transformed as a new creation. And it is as a new creation that we do the work of Jesus. As we are surrounded by the cares of this world... Where do we lose sight of the cross and how it forms our lives? Where do we lose sight? How do we live as people who bear the cross, who know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? As I've already said, 1 Corinthians is the answer to that question. That's why the Lord has given us the Spirit to transform our lives in the pattern of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that brings us to our third point, spiritual power. Paul might come in weakness and fear and much trembling. He repeats himself in verse 4, his speech and message are not in plausible words of wisdom. Later, we will hear that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. The message of a crucified Lord is counterintuitive. It will be a stumbling block to those who are not willing to hear. This is a sad reality. At the same time, Paul can say that his speech and message came with or in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. The preaching of Paul, particularly the message that Jesus saves, that Jesus is King and Lord, is a message of power. It's a message that is given in the Spirit. 
When Paul faithfully proclaims that message, he can be faithful, he can trust that the Spirit is there with him. The Spirit is here today in this message, ready to encourage and stir up faith and confidence in our hearts. The message of the cross is a message of power. It's not a power that's obvious, but it's a power that goes beyond appearances. For through this message, the Spirit invisibly works in our hearts so that we too reflect this message. The response to the wisdom of this world is the power of the gospel. It is the power of the truth. The truth that Christ died to save sinners. That Christ died and rose again so that I might live. And that truth is powerful because of the spirit that is poured out on the church. This is the spirit of witness that dwells in our hearts so that we may fulfill our callings as prophets, priests, and kings before the Lord. It's not obvious, it's far from obvious, that faithful preaching and faithful witness will result in conversion, especially in our own godless secular era. But God is with His people. We have the Spirit, and the Spirit teaches us how to live. The Spirit guides us in our lives so that we learn to love God more and more. Paul's whole purpose in how he presents himself to the Corinthians in his simple approach, relying on the Spirit and God's power, is that the Corinthians themselves might not rely on the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. The Corinthians are to rely on spiritual power to live out their lives. Sometimes we've overreacted to the excesses of Pentecostalism and the way we think about the Spirit's leading today. Unfortunately, this gives us permission to sometimes rely on human wisdom as if it were divine wisdom. But the Spirit is still powerful and He works in our lives regardless. Let us be open to His working. He is the one who led Christ to the work of the cross and He now leads us under the cross. I'll give two examples of how we, do, we can do this. First, the Spirit is a spirit of mission. We need to develop a deep sense, like the apostles, that everything that happens, everything that is going on, is guided by the Spirit for the sake of the mission of the church. Who does God love? Who does God center the history of this world around? The church. Christ and his church. And this includes when the work of the church receives resistance from the world. We can see this in our own hearts when, when sins seem to refuse to be crushed and we keep fighting. That's the work of the Spirit. Relentless struggle is a sign of the Spirit. Sometimes we think that, that when we're fighting, we're not living by the Spirit but the truth is, as we struggle with our bodies, as we struggle with the principalities and powers of this world, that is the calling of the Christian. And if internally, also externally. 
And Jesus is our example again. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Through the Spirit, Jesus accepted his mission to the cross. The Spirit drove Paul throughout the world and eventually to Rome. As we read in our, in our text, in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Suffering isn't a sign that we're out of sync with the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit is strengthening us for greater things to come. Second, the Spirit is a spirit of, this, of the church. Spirit of mission, the Spirit of the church. And of course, the church is embedded into that mission of Christ. As we grow together in one mind of, of Jesus Christ, as we welcome more people from different nations to our table, as we share with one another, as we devote our goods, our time, and our talent to the work of the church, these are not necessarily as, a, as exciting as the miracles that characterize the apostolic age, but they are truly signs of the Spirit. Let us accept these as signs of the Spirit among us, and by these let us be moved to greater witness for the sake of God's church. To go back to chapter 1. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We're a people under the cross and we reflect that in our weakness. But God has given us the power and the spirit of the gospel. That power overcomes the wisdom of this world. So let us boast in God the Father. Let us boast in Jesus Christ. And let us boast in a powerful spirit. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2.